Welcome to this AMR audio interview, sponsored by the Transactions of the ASME, Applied Mechanics Reviews, and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich, and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as the premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science, including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration, and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. We hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal and more technically focused material available through the AMR journal, as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. I'm excited to present to you today's guest, Professor Philip Holmes of the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. Professor Holmes was born in North Lincolnshire in England in 1945. He obtained a BA with honors from Oxford University in Engineering Science in 1967. Following a year of apprenticing at Rolls-Royce Aero Engineering in Derby, he directed his attention away from engineering toward a literary and poetry interest that had blossomed already in his late youth and through his undergraduate studies. A year spent in the Yorkshire Dales resulted in the first book of poetry published in 1971 entitled Three Sections of Poems. A subsequent collection, published in 1977, gained recognition through an Eric Gregory Award from the UK Society of Authors in 1975. After further exploratory travel in 1969, Professor Holmes joined an engineering lab as a research assistant at the Institute of Sound and Vibration Research at Southampton University under the guidance of Professor Robert White, where he pursued experimental work on wave propagation and vibration characterization while initiating a lifelong study of nonlinear dynamics. After graduating in 1974 and following three years as a postdoctoral research fellow at Southampton, Professor Holmes eventually obtained an assistant professor position at Cornell University, where he stayed until 1994, when he joined Princeton with a joint appointment in mechanical and aerospace engineering and the program in applied and computational mathematics, a program he directed for three years between 1994 and 1997. Professor Holmes is most well known for his work in the analysis of nonlinear dynamical systems, with applications to fluid flows, celestial mechanics, pattern formation, insect locomotion, and human cognition. His 200-some published papers and the attention they garnered earned him a listing as a highly cited researcher by the American Society for Information Science and Technology in 2003. He's a co-author of textbooks and research monographs on knot theory, turbulence and coherent structure dynamics, solar system dynamics, and the now classic reference on nonlinear oscillations, dynamical systems, and bifurcations of vector fields with John Guggenheimer. In recognition of his contributions, Professor Holmes was elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1994, became a fellow of the American Physical Society in 2006, and of the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics in 2011, and is a recipient of the Lyapunov and the T.K. Coggy Awards, both from groups within the ASME. Professor Holmes has provided extensive service to the applied dynamics and nonlinear science communities through conference and symposium organization and editorial board membership. Since 2010, he is co-editor-in-chief of four book series in applied mathematics and is an associate editor of the SIAM Journal on Applied Dynamical Systems since 2001. Finally, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm happy to count myself among one of Professor Holmes's academic descendants, having joined his research effort while at Cornell in the early 1990s and spent the 1994-1995 academic year in Fine Hall on the Princeton campus following Professor Holmes's move. 
The interview you're about to hear was recorded in Princeton, New Jersey on November 6, 2012. Professor Holmes, Phil, welcome to this interview. It's a pleasure to uh, sit down with you here and I appreciate the time. Happy to start with the beginning. Uh, I did mention your your literary interest, and I, I know that uh, from an interview I read in Siam News some years ago, I guess it appeared in 2002, uh, you mentioned that your father had quite a collection of poetry and, and literature at home. Is that right? Not, uh, not so much poetry. Okay. Uh, he was a great reader, and uh-huh. certainly novels and you know histories and memoirs and so on. Right, yes. Well, both he and my mother encouraged what was his profession? Reading. He was an auctioneer and estate agent. So he'd left school at 16, article to uh, to an auctioneer and uh, land valuer, and uh, had wound up with his own small business. He was the son of a farmer. He was a sort of typical rural... I, I'm not even entirely sure where North Lincolnshire is. Halfway up the right-hand side. So uh, north of Cambridgeshire, south of Yorkshire... So what would be the nearest uh, large city or town? Well, Lincoln, although Lincolnshire is, it's a, in some sense, almost an invisible county. And in, in fact, the part that I grew up in is yeah. no longer called Lincolnshire. It's called South Humberside. But it was the only county, and I think still is the only county, that doesn't have a university in it. Uh, it's a farming county. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not known for tourism. There are no spectacular hills or moors. It's lots of good farmland. Yeah. But your father was in the, in the village area uh, then? They, or was it we, a town? A small town. Yeah. small town, about 5,000 people, something like that. And your mother? Small a... market town. She came from York, one of 10 children. But after marrying my father, yeah. moved to Lincolnshire. Oxford is then uh, some distance away? Yeah, Oxford is 100 miles south, uh, 120, maybe 150 miles south. And when you went there, you went for an engineering science degree. So I went was, for an engineering science degree. Did you have right. preparatory material? Uh, well, well you, you mentioned the, the apprenticeship at Rolls-Royce. In yeah. fact, it was a, a two-part affair, something called in, in England in those days a thick sandwich scheme. So the thick part of the sandwich, or the meat, I suppose, uh, was the the three years at university. And the the, the two slices of bread were a year of apprenticeship uh, at each end. Uh And the first year of apprenticeship, at least at at Rolls-Royce, this was the aero engine division in Derby, started the same for all apprentices, whether they were going to wind up working on the shop floor, in the foundry, whatever it was. You went through basic sort of boot camp in learning machine tools. Yes. And yeah. then the ones on this university program went off to university, went back each summer for maybe a couple of months to work uh, again at Rolls-Royce, and uh, then came back for a final year. The education was uh, at no cost? At that time, this was in the 1960s, yeah. I was at Oxford from 63 to 60. Uh, 64 to 67. So I started at Rolls-Royce in 63. The whole thing finished five years later, 68. Yes, my my tuition and uh, an allowance for, uh, you know, food and board and lodging and so on was provided by the local authority. It all came out of taxpayer dollars. Rolls-Royce offered me, as part of their package they they gave a small grant of maybe a hundred pounds or something like that uh, uh, for for each year of my university studies as well so yes. that was a little sort of bonus yes. 
I remember one incident that I, I was a bit of a smart ass, I guess, <laughs> and I offended, uh, maybe more than offended, <laughs> the staff member who was in charge of the apprenticeship program, and uh, and he informed me that I would not be getting my 100, 100 pounds okay. uh, <laughs> for the next year, but uh, if I behave myself, then I might eventually get gay. This was over the summer, then, or this, this, this was This was uh, for the second year, I guess for my first year at university. But but in the end, I got it in the second year. So he apparently. <laughs> but I also read in in this interview that you gave that you sort of during that time at Oxford, at some point decided that engineering wasn't your thing, or was that really right? More I, at the, I in had, the second half. Of... Right, I had grown up, you know, interested in machines and building things with uh, what we called in England Meccano erector yeah, sets. Yeah, 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 right, yeah. Uh, this was before the days of Lego mm -hmm. and so forth. You know, I had an old car that I was trying to rebuild really? and so forth. And so I was interested in, in machines. But I didn't really know what engineering was. Uh, once I got to university, I discovered that I was... That it wasn't what you thought. Well, it was, you know, the, the scientific parts yeah. of it were pretty interesting. Yeah. But, you know, it, I was interested in a lot of other things, too. Yeah. I, I began writing more or less seriously. Uh -huh. I probably spent almost as much time in other courses for majors that I wasn't studying at Oxford as I did in engineering. And so uh, I, by the time I'd finished, I was not so enthusiastic about going back to Rolls-Royce for the final year, yeah. but I did. I that was it, part yeah. of the deal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I got, so I got my apprenticeship qualifications mm -hmm. and so forth. But then I thought, well, I've saved a bit of money. I'm going to go and write poetry for a year. And that led to going up and living in the Yorkshire Dales. Which is now further north? That was further north and in the Pennines, in the, the relatively large range of hills in the middle of England. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so. I, I confess to having uh, watched religiously Emmerdale Farm, which yes. I guess takes place in... Uh, that, this is a, that's a, probably up somewhere in the Yorkshire Dales. English yes. Uh, yes. Uh, TV yes. series that started sometime in the yeah. 70s, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the famous series uh, about that particular area yeah. where I lived in Swaledale was uh, about a, a, a vet, uh, Harriet. Ah, uh, James yes. Her yes, yes, yes. Novelist, I remember this now, right, yes. wrote a series of books about it. He, was, right. he was a right. vet. And that's right. Wrote, I've read one right. of those books, so, too, yeah. But you were all Be alone beautiful there, area. Yeah, yeah, I lived by myself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and wrote poetry and took long walks in the rain across the moors. Well, what else can you do yeah, in North Yorkshire? <laughs> and, and, and and did your parents have thoughts about this or no? They it they well it? they didn't know. Yeah, I mean they sort of helped out. They yeah. put me in touch with someone who could rent a place to okay. me. Yeah. And yeah. Um, were there others who did this? I mean, did you have peers that had done um, similar? Yeah. So I mean, I had a number of fellow students, friends. Uh, from Oxford, I had uh, also decided, you know, to travel, to do various non-standard kind of things. Yeah. So it was not colossally unusual. Uh -huh. um, and in hindsight, perfectly fitting with where you sort of envisioned. Uh, well, I, yeah, I had a, I had no a, regrets, I had a year. Time, no, right? absolutely yeah, yeah, not. Yeah, I right. had a year in which I'd read a lot of books. Right. Yeah. I uh, wrote some poetry that at least got published. Yeah. <laughs> And after a year, uh, just under a year in, up in North Yorkshire, I decided I wanted to travel. And yeah. uh, so I, I then spent a year traveling in Europe and the Middle East yep. and wound up in Israel. Back, backpacking in some sense? Or, yes, yeah? yes. Yeah. And back totally. Walked about 2,000 miles over a period of five months or so. Uh -huh. Wound up in Israel where I met my wife. Sure. And uh, after we had uh, gotten married in, uh, in uh, late 1970... I guess just before we got married, I began. Yeah. We'd come back to England. And yeah. I began looking for a job. I fondly thought, "Oh, I have a book of poetry in press. I can, uh, you know, I can maybe get a job as a 
writing teacher at a college or uh -huh. something like that, uh -huh. a technical college. Of course, I was totally unqualified. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but how did was, you get the book published? Got interviewed. Oh, the, well, the book, uh, while I was at Oxford, there yeah. was a very lively uh, poetry kind of subculture at Oxford, okay, yeah. mostly among you know students studying the liberal arts, yeah. and English and so forth. But uh, and I began, uh, you know, attending uh, meetings of the Poetry Society and sharing where well, we shared our work and so on. Sure. And I submitted uh, poems to a magazine in Oxford. Right. Uh, they were rejected, but I received some encouraging notes uh -huh. from the editor. Uh -huh. um, and uh, so your first rejections were not scientific papers. That's a... uh, no. This was before <laughs> they began to be rejected. They <laughs> came later. Right. <laughs> And uh, Peter Jay, who was editing uh, uh -huh. a, a magazine called New Measure, yeah. which um, I guess started up in my second year at Oxford. Uh, as I say, he rejected some work and then he accepted some. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and he was actually using this magazine. It was kind of an interesting concept. He, he decided he would publish maybe 10 issues over a period of three or four years yeah. and use this to assemble a, a sort of group of writers that mm -hmm. he was interested in publishing mm -hmm. and 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 this they became the core of his first group of authors i see and the press is still running oh, is after right? you know 40 plus years mm -hmm. almost 50 years mm -hmm. now it's survive it's amazing it's surviving on tiny little arts council grants right. and uh, the award from the society for authors did he nominate did the press nominate you for um, this is that how that worked I, or, uh, I think he he probably was involved in yeah. submitting it yeah. for this competition right because that uh, was given before the book appeared in that print, was right? for the that was for the second book right right that was awarded for a manuscript that was actually part of the second book I see. it wasn't uh, the yeah. book then had other poems added sure, to it sure. uh, subsequently right so poet yes but but english so, educator or, or write, writing uh, no. instructor not and okay. so I, yeah. be I became a little more realistic and applied for a couple of jobs at university laboratories i'd remembered in my last year at rolls royce working for a couple of months in a sort of uh, in, in a material science lab at the university of nottingham that was doing contract work for rolls royce yeah. and i'd enjoyed the sort of less formal atmosphere mm -hmm. i didn't have to punch a time clock mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. we had more independence sure. and so i thought oh yeah working in a lab would be kind of fun and so one of these places i uh, applied to was was at southampton mm -hmm. and i uh, i realized uh realized pretty soon how how fortunate i was when i was offered a position there because the guy who hired me bob white yeah. was also a very unconventional kind of guy he had left school at 16, gone to be an apprentice at yeah. the Royal Aircraft Establishment. Mm -hmm. You know, one of his supervisors had noticed that he was a really smart kid and said, well, why don't you go to uh, night school and get a, you know, technical college degree? And he did. But he didn't have a bachelor's degree. He had mm -hmm. some kind of, I'm not exactly sure what kind mm -hmm. of qualification it was. But um, uh, again, he was recognized as being a really smart guy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he was interested in vibration problems yeah. and somebody said oh you should go and talk to brian clarkson at the university of southampton at the institute of sound and vibration research and he went and talked to clarkson clarkson took him on as a graduate student uh -huh. so he got a phd without, without having a, a bachelor's, bachelor's degree, degree yeah. and i was his second student i think wow. second uh -huh. or third student. but when you joined you joined as a student or you joined originally as, I, as a sort of I lab was, assistant i was a lab assistant yeah. basically yeah. research what, what would be called a research assistant right. here in in the u.s and after a month or so, Bob uh, came, you know, I'd begun building little rigs in the, uh -huh. the lab and uh -huh. we were running 
know, fast Fourier transforms on oh, yeah. paper tapes in an okay. old PDP-8 computer. Uh -huh. And uh, he came came into the lab one day and he said, you know, uh, this work you're doing, is beginning to find it interesting? And I said, yeah, it's, you know, I'm yeah. really kind of enjoying this. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, you can get a PhD doing this. Are yeah. <laughs> you interested in that? I said, well, I guess so. Yeah. You know. Can't hurt. He said, yeah. he said, it's only 50 pounds a year. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just take it out of your wages, uh -huh. which weren't very big, but. You know, 50 pounds a year tuition for a PhD, that was pretty good. <laughs> so I, I wound up getting a PhD. And um, so my, most of the work I did for my PhD was, was sort of fairly conventional, the, the mathematical modeling at least. I mean, it was mm -hmm. primarily an experimental thesis mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to develop uh, techniques for uh, characterizing vibration transmission through structures yep. where energy was traveling in, in dispersive waves. Okay. So you couldn't make a simple sort of time of flight estimate to determine yeah. Yeah. A, a, trans a likely transmission path. This was actually a project funded by the, by the British Navy who were interested in making submarines and surface ships quieter by isolating machinery, and, and they were needed to know, you know where are the major sound transmission paths which are taking vibrations to the hull so that they can get radiated into the water. Right. And so we uh, were involved in trying to figure out excitation patterns that would best balance the, the requirement that there be a relatively short pulse mm -hmm. and that the pulse contain a relatively narrow frequency band, mm -hmm. which, of course, are contradictory requirements. If you have a sharp impulse, then it has a broad spectrum right. and vice versa. Right. But uh, by taking um, a, a sequence of uh, small pieces of a pure sine wave uh, modulated basically by a, by a square wave of increasing frequency, we were able to produce a nice deterministic excitation that mm -hmm. could be parameterized very easily mm -hmm. that had a broad but low spectrum with a very sharp peak in the middle and mm -hmm. also more or less decaying triangular wave for correlation function, so it, okay. was, it satisfied both requirements yep. to some degree. This work was primarily experimental, yeah. and it was the, the mathematical modeling, such as there was, was, was entirely linear. It was uh -huh. to do with you know, um, the dispersive waves frequency response yeah. functions, yeah. transfer functions, Fourier analysis, yep. Fourier transforms, Laplace yep. transforms, linear, beautiful linear theory. Right. Very I, nice I believe stuff. I've seen ex graphs from your thesis at some point you may have shown me of uh, spectra and stuff. Right, so right, out, so right. Yeah. beautiful mm -hmm. stuff. I mm -hmm. teach it to graduate students. Oh, yeah. still, and this is great stuff. Yeah. So nothing nonlinear at all. When I was here uh, in 94, Sir Lytle uh, came by. James Lytle came to give a distinguished lecture. Yes. That's right. Yes. Um, and that's a sort of a British tradition of, I mean, his expertise in wave theory. and, and Yeah, he was primarily a fluid mechanician, That's a right. brilliant fluid mechanician, yeah. and was certainly interested in sound radiation and waves. Right. Yeah, yeah. Is this a strength that's still present in the? Well, it's still UK present science. at so still present at Southampton. Southampton certainly, yeah. the um, ISVR was, uh, although I didn't realize it until I'd been there for some time, quite unusual in that it was a collection of people coming from different areas, from mm -hmm. physics, from in fact from biological uh, acoustics mm -hmm. and audition. There was a human factors group. Um, there were people interested in um, environmental issues. This was the time of the design of the Concorde. And I see. Yeah. People were concerned about sonic booms, booms over yeah. land, mm -hmm. and so there were there were people doing surveys and uh, in housing developments and right. so on. It was, a, it was kind of an integrated program, right. quite quite unusual. Lighthill came, I'm almost certain, during 
my time as a grad student or as a postdoc yeah. uh, maybe a couple of times to give to give lectures yeah. uh, at, at Southampton. Uh, when he came to Princeton yeah. in, in 1994, he was emeritus, and he actually gave a wonderful lecture about yeah. hurricanes. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Review's audio interview from November 6, 2012, with Professor Philip Holmes of the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Princeton University. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. In the final year, I guess, when I was writing my thesis, uh, 1970, late 73 maybe, I, I noticed um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a bulletin board in ISVR a little uh, announcement that there would be a series of lectures given in the mathematics department on catastrophe theory mm -hmm. by David Chillingworth, a mm -hmm. lecturer in mathematics. And I thought, oh, okay, well, this sounds interesting. You know, what <laughs> yeah. catastrophe theory? Yes. So I found my way across to the math department. Yes. I'd, I'd never been in the math department after being at huh. Southampton for three years. Huh. This, you know, this was a different world. It was on the other side of the road. You uh -huh. know, it was engineering was on this side. You had to at least was, cross the road. Mathematics was on that side, <laughs> and you didn't really talk to those guys. Is that right? But this was in the math department. That it they was in the math said. department, yeah. and David had, had uh, just finished a postdoctoral fellowship at Warwick, which uh -huh. had a very strong group in dynamical systems right. around Christopher Zeeman, who had actually founded the Mathematics Institute at Warwick. And so I find myself sitting in this, uh, in, 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 in this lecture, hearing about uh, K-jets and differentiable manifolds, yeah. and I'm totally at sea, and I begin asking the guy sitting next to me, yes. Question. So the yeah. guy sitting next to me turns out to be David Rand, yeah. oh. who had just completed a PhD in algebraic topology, was trying to learn something about dynamical systems uh -huh. and bifurcations, yeah. and was interested in you know, learning more about applied math. Um, and so we began talking after the lectures and uh, decided that the best way to uh, for me to learn about dynamical systems and bifurcations and catastrophes and the best way for David to learn something about applications was for us to try to write to a paper together. Do something, yes, yeah. yes. So we found a preprint called uh, The Cusp Catastrophe and the Brain by Christopher Zeeman. And it was essentially an analysis of Duffing's equation, a classic staple which I had heard of in, in nonlinear oscillations. I see. And, uh, you know, we read this preprint, mm -hmm. and uh, there, was a, there was an interesting mistake in it, okay. a mathematical mistake. Uh, um, it's an opportunity. An opportunity, <laughs> yes. So the application to it, it was really to do with the, this oscillator jumping between two states. If, if, you, if you know the frequency response curve right. of the stiffening Duffing, Duffing's equation, instead of having a vertical resonance peak, so there's a unique solution for each uh, frequency of the forcing, mm. there is a region in which the, for the nonlinear system in which the peak bends over. There are now two stable solutions and unstable separated by an unstable solution. And the application was, I think, a rather thin sort of <laughs> neuroscientifically, <laughs> yeah. at least from my present perspective, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, in that, you know, you could jump between two opinions or, or two, ah, two beliefs ah, uh, I see, I see. back and forth. That and there was hysteresis. Thin, yes. And so, you yeah. know, it had some. Yes. some uh... So anyway, we were more interested in the mathematics. Sure. And, and so we, we, we wrote some notes about how to fix the mistakes. Yeah. And, and uh, we, we, we wrote to, uh, to Professor Zeeman. Yeah. And he very graciously and quite rapidly responded uh -huh. saying, yes, indeed, there's a mistake. Uh -huh. and, and what you're doing is very interesting. Uh -huh. And I encourage you to complete a paper. 
And we did this, yeah. and we submitted it to the Journal of Sound and Vibration. Just the two of you, right? Uh, yes, yeah. uh, R- Rand and Holmes. And uh, the, the editor, Philip Doak, wonderful acoustician who ran the journal for many, many years, okay. uh, sent it to, uh, because we referenced Zeman's, sure. and, and he sent it to Zeman to, as one of the reviewers, and yeah. Zeman wrote an extremely long and interesting review, okay. which led to our improving the paper. Positive revisions, good, yeah, yeah. And so that was... In some sense, my first nonlinear paper. So at that point, I got a research fellowship. Uh, this is after graduating. I guess on, yeah. on a grant mm-hmm. um, that uh, Brian Clarkson, who was the director of the Institute uh-huh. of Sound and Vibration Research, had. And he was also a wonderful advisor, as, as Bob White had been. He, he, uh, Brian said, well, you can really do whatever you want. Uh, it would be nice if you do something that's related to system identification, but you can basically follow your nose. And so I took system identification to mean, well, I can start to try to learn and apply the tools of nonlinear dynamics. So I started reading Smale's papers. Mm-hmm. I got in touch with Jerry Marsden, yeah. first corresponded with him in 1975, really? and then we met when he came to Southampton to a conference that uh-huh. was actually co-organized by David Rand in 1976. Yeah. At the same time, I met John Guckenheimer, who also huh. came, and Ken, Nancy Coppell, and Ken Cook was the four. There were four American mathematicians. Ken Cook, who worked on differential delay equations, came. So it was a great sort of introduction to dynamical systems, which, aside from Zeeman and a few other people at Warwick, one or two people scattered around elsewhere, there was very little work in dynamical systems and not much interest in applications. In the UK, in, you mean? In the UK yeah. at that uh-huh. point. There had been work... Um, Important work in nonlinear oscillations in England by Mary Cartwright, and yes, she came right. to Southampton. Right. In yeah. fact, uh, but this is in the 40s, 30s, 40s. Well, uh, that work was in the that work was in the 40s and yeah. 50s. Right. Uh, she came to Southampton actually in '72, but that was before I had met Chillingworth, and there was a mm. wonderful so conference that I completely missed because <laughs> I hadn't crossed the road to the Matterhorn. Sure, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, I think was mentioned. We did a special issue on, uh, in honor of your 60th birthday some number of years ago, and we had three uh, essays written in the beginning of the, of the issue on the book right, that you wrote later right, with John Guggenheimer. Right, right. And one of the things that was brought out by at least one of the authors was that you know, your work, in some sense, was able to bring some of the Russian literature uh, yeah. into both the yeah. engineering and math communities yeah, so, in the US. So I don't, I don't remember... Do you agree? Who, yes. <laughs> well, I, I think I... Yeah, I was, not, I was certainly not the first or, yeah. or the only person yeah. to to realize that the Russians had done an enormous amount. Dynamical systems, having started with Poincaré and grown out of celestial mechanics, sure. grown out of applications, yeah. it really moved into pure mathematics uh-huh. departments. Uh-huh. And in the U.S. certainly, and in Britain too, it was not really connected much at all with applications. Mary Cartwright's work was, was, was really an exception. She wrote a very, very important paper, a very short paper, um, about uh, the, the forced van der Poel equation yeah. with uh, John Littlewood, yes. the number the theorist, Littlewood paper, yeah. and Hardy, That's right. much yeah. better number. And that was picked up by Norman Levinson at, uh-huh. at MIT, uh-huh. who wrote a paper that's maybe three times longer and yeah. simplified the problem. It was subsequently Levinson who pointed out to Stephen Smale, who was becoming interested in dynamical systems in 1959-1960, and Smale had conjectured that a structurally stable dynamical system, to be structurally stable, that is to say to not change its qualitative properties under small perturbations, uh, had to have uh, at most a finite number of fixed points, mm-hmm. finite number of periodic orbits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but Levinson pointed out that this strange little paper of Cartwright and Littlewood seemed to produce a counterexample. 
and uh-huh. in thinking about that smell, Led to the invented horseshoe. the horseshoe. This sort of split, the splitting of dynamical systems and its sort of migration to pure mathematics didn't really happen in Russia. There was a very, very strong mathematical tradition around Kolmogorov, mm-hmm. around his former student Arnold. Yep. But those people remained in touch with the mathematical physicists mm-hmm. and, and radio engineers and so forth. And there was also a very strong group around uh, Andronov. Most of their examples came from electrical engineering. Yeah. They had a, um, a sort of nonlinear waves, plasma physics. Yeah. They would probably think of themselves as mathematical physicists. I remember when I took the course with you back when we had the Dover version of yes, their book. Yes, yes. But was the original book. book also published in English? No. Well, it was originally, the first edition was published in 1937 in Moscow. A second edition in Russia came out a little later. The English translation wasn't published until 1966. So I, I learned about that book certainly early on at Southampton. I probably uh-huh. knew about it and was using it when I started working with David Rand. And so this was maybe one of the introductions right. to the Russian. But I remember having, and I still have the, you know, the photocopy of a giant review paper of Arnold's uh-huh. about bifurcations, uh-huh. uh, which came from the Russian Mathematical Surveys, a journal that was in transla- available in translation mm-hmm. a year or two after mm-hmm. each issue came out mm-hmm. in, in the library of Southampton. Mm-hmm. So I became interested in trying to, I wouldn't say liberate these ideas from mathematicians, but propagate them a little bit among non-mathematicians, right? And I think that's one of the things that that the the book, for example, is recognized as having accomplished. Yeah, well, the genesis of that book was um, discussions with David Rand that we started having before I left England in 1977 to go to Cornell. We realized that there's a real opportunity here to write a nice textbook Mm -hmm. and, uh, and get this stuff out into applied mathematics and yeah. into engineering. With, and in fact, tools, yeah, yeah in my techniques. last year at Southampton, I'd given quite a few lectures in, in other British universities, and I found that it was much easier to get engineers and physicists interested in this material than it was applied mathematicians. Uh-huh. At that point, applied mathematics in England was very much dominated by perturbation methods, uh-huh. Most of it was somehow closely aligned with fluid mechanics. The national headquarters was the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics Physics. at Cambridge, Mm -hmm. dominated by G.K. Batchelor, by the memory of G.I. Taylor, wonderful, wonderful people, uh, but not much interest in qualitative methods, in geometric methods, in, let's say, modern mathematics. David and I felt we could yeah, we could do something useful here. Mm-hmm. And we, we began teaching a course mm-hmm. here at Warwick, me at Cornell, and uh, writing notes. And uh, we each drafted a chapter, and we exchanged our chapters. And it was clear that these were two extremely different chapters from extremely different viewpoints. Huh. David had, after all, got a PhD in algebraic topology. Yes. And so we argued and argued for a while, and not too much got done. Uh-huh. And then in 1980, 1981, yeah. I had a visiting appointment at Berkeley to work with Jerry Marsden. Right. David came to uh, work with John Guckenheimer at uh, Santa Cruz. And I remember we had uh, three of us, uh, David and John and I, met for lunch on the Berkeley campus one beautiful spring day and sat outside eating our sandwiches and uh, and finally John said to us are you guys going to write this book or not because if you don't then I will uh-huh. <laughs> and so we said oh John why don't you join us and the three of us will do it uh-huh. and for about a month that was the working plan and right. then David David said ah I've got better things to do you guys do it <laughs> so Maintained the friendship and backed out of yes, the conflict. Yes, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, we, we yeah. remain These things friends, can be yes. difficult. Uh, yes. No, there was no. Yeah. No, we don't. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was fine. 
You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from November 6, 2012, with Professor Philip Holmes of the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Princeton University. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. Going back a little bit to to the poetry writing, and I, since I'm not at all not written poetry myself, but I, I'm wondering to what degree writing poetry is inspiration, and to what degree it's sort of perspiration. I mean, how much technique versus <laughs> versus you know big insights, and and then how that translates into what we, what you and I do. For, uh, so for well, for me, it's I don't know, ninety five percent perspiration, five yeah. percent inspiration. But when uh, the inspiration comes, do you recognize it? No, no, not 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 very clearly. I, I write something down, and it's usually a bit of a mess. It needs a lot of work to get it into shape. Okay. Uh, a lot of stuff doesn't get used, and what does get used goes through many many versions. You know, I've published four books at this point, yeah. and the last book was published in two thousand and two. The the earliest poem in that book was probably written in the nineteen eighty four. Three, 1984, something like that. Uh, It takes a long, long time. The structure of a poem is not then similar to a mathematical construct where there's sort of a beginning and end necessarily, or or there could be such where you you sort of see where you're going. When 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 it's it's finished, there should be a beginning and an end, definitely. Um, When it's uh, under construction, it's not so clear, at least the way I write poetry you know what starts out as what might be a, a verse which i might think of as opening the poem often finds itself somewhere else altogether in the poem and maybe broken into pieces and distributed but um, we don't do math this way or maybe some people do but we just sort of come up with things and put them down and then eventually see how they fit together well it, it I, tends to be I, a little more from the, from uh, one point going to the next it, point so it, to speak Right. There's usually, if you're doing mathematics, and particularly if you're trying to extend a result, there's so much structure there already that you have to work within that structure. And it may be fairly clear, you know, you're modeling a result on something that's been done before, you're trying to extend it to a more awkward case with some extra terms and surface tension, Uh as well as gravitational forces, and so you're constrained. In writing a poem... Unless you're adding to a sequence, you're starting ab initio, you're starting from scratch. Various images, which will show up in the poem, I suppose, as metaphors, suggest themselves. Mm -hmm. And and I might just make notes all Mm -hmm. over. I do this by hand. I can't do it on a computer. I want to be able to write in different directions, in different colors all over the Uh, paper. Uh, And then it gradually gets sort of pulled into shape. But is this also why it's difficult to sort of know when it's finished? Well, it's, I forget who said it, but poems are not finished. They're never finished. just abandoned. Ah. <laughs> um, comes a point when you just have yeah. to move on. And I, and I would say that I think there is quite a strong parallel, for me at any rate, between the way I'm assembling poems out of fragments and the way I build mathematical models okay. out of fragments and suggestions. Yeah. And, and one has rather vague ideas about how something might be used but in in but in math and maybe this is where i was going a little bit um i, I mean I, I count myself as lucky as having had a couple of experiences that um amounted to a, a, you know at one moment and not knowing the answer to something and then at the next moment having realized something yeah. having seen something you yeah. know whether it's a picture that it pops up and all of a sudden it just sort of works yeah. Um, maybe it's not one second to the next, but it's nevertheless over the course of a few days or so I can sort of see where, mm-hmm. I, where I was ignorant mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. where I have mm-hmm. gained a lot of understanding. I find it hard to 
recall any times when it was really clear that you know I had the idea. I, I, I don't think I've ever had an experience like Poincaré's famous instant before he gets on the omnibus. He's going off to inspect a mine in Cain, I think, in northern France. And he suddenly realizes some wonderful relationship to do with theta functions, uh-huh. the special functions. Uh-huh. And he uh, st- pauses for a moment and then realizes, well, I can write it all down later. Yeah. And he goes and sits down on the omnibus and off they go. Yeah. And he writes it down later. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had an experience as clear-cut as that. Huh. It's more that um, the scene, the paper, the, the paragraph, the section of the paper emerges slowly, slowly from a fog. And it just becomes a little bit clearer. Day Are you surprised by, day. by that process? I mean, do you think that it? Um, it, it well, had, no. Do you understand I mean, the process? I'm usually working on it quite hard and yeah. trying to write it down. Yeah. And, I've, and, and until I write it down, or until I speak about it several times right. in public and have to answer questions about it and realize that I can't, yeah. uh, I don't. <laughs> I don't really understand it clearly for a long time. I mean, I think there are papers I've written which I don't really understand very clearly Still, now. Yeah. Going back to them is, is, well, sort of sometimes refreshing and pleasant and sometimes a little disturbing. One thing that can be said, not only of your research activities, which are very varied, but maybe to some degree of some of, the, of your papers, is that you're willing to take some risks, which not everybody would be. What, what yeah, is the source well, uh, of this? Right. I remember another of my former students, Andrew Seri, who's yeah. now at Berkeley, remarked that uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't stay focused for very long. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that, he said. I realized he was right. You know, <laughs> well, I do stay focused for a while, for a while. I, looking back, I guess there are four or five major interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there was the the work that I got into as a graduate student, of course. I was really pointed towards it sure. by, by Bob White. We had this research project, and it was acoustics and vibration transmission. And uh, and then I got quite interested in non, nonlinear vibrations, nonlinear mm-hmm. oscillations. That led me into classical mechanics, mm-hmm. which I had not really paid much attention to seriously before, to problems, related problems in nonlinear elasticity and solid mechanics. But there's this period of solid mechanics and vibrations, yeah. and then I got connected with colleagues in mechanical and aerospace at Cornell, right. in particular Sid Leibovich and John Lumley, who introduced me to wonderful problems in nonlinear stability analyses of fluids Bi-layer and turbulence. Dynamic. And that uh, interest uh, probably went from the late 70s, early 80s, oh, really? all the way through, you know, for 20 years or so. I, I worked fairly hard on problems in fluid mechanics and yeah. turbulence. Yeah. Wrote this book with Gal Bocuz, a wonderful former student, and, yeah. and John Lumley. So there was this period of solid mechanics, fluid mechanics, which, oh, I, you, which I think of as somehow the heart of applied mechanics. Sure, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, and then I, I began um, partly by actually most of what I've done I think has sort of come to me by chance the uh-huh. whole thing of me winding up at Southampton because I couldn't get a job <laughs> in Lewisham Technical College teaching English to foreign students or something ah, yes. it was a complete chance you yeah, know, that yeah. Bob White would sure. pay attention to me and realize sure. that I at least uh, might be worth <laughs> taking under his wing it's all a matter of being um, alert to what's going on around you, right. and you'll, you'll get into interesting things. Yeah. You get into interesting discussions. Yeah. 
My, my first uh, paper in mathematical biology and mathematical neuroscience came out of waiting in line at the copying machine in the math department at Cornell in 1980. woman in front of me is copying something that looks kind of interesting. I ask her, what's this? You know, this funny sort of scratchy-looking picture. She says, oh, these are records of voltages from a bursting neuron in a spinal cord of a lamprey. I said, oh, really? Well, kind of fish. Know, tell me yeah. about it. What yeah. are you doing here in the math department? Turned out she was married to a mathematician. She didn't have a position at that point uh -huh. at Cornell. She'd just come back from a postdoc in Sweden with Sten Grillner, one of the leaders in central pattern generator studies. Uh -huh. So we started talking about these, uh, these irregular bursts. They weren't quite periodic. She was trying to understand how the period-to-period -period frequency was varying, and she was basically trying to do this by a kind of version of a Poincaré map. And so I said, oh, well, we've, I've been talking with... Um, Another Rand, Richard Rand, yeah. a colleague in theoretical applied mechanics who was interested in oscillations mm -hmm. and limit cycle mm -hmm. oscillators. And we'd been doing some reading about rhythms, circadian rhythms and other kinds of rhythms. And so I said, oh, well, uh, you know, I know a little bit about nonlinear oscillators, mm -hmm. and so let's talk. Mm -hmm. And this led to a paper that appeared in the Journal of Mathematical Biology in yeah. 82, I think. In so I began to be interested in biology. This was in the middle of my solid mechanics phase, I guess, before I got mm -hmm. really hooked up to Lumley at mm -hmm. any rate. 20 years or so of solid and fluid mechanics, and then I began to be more and more involved in biology, and there was a brief detour in the 90s that came from having a couple of postdocs who were interested in, in nonlinear optics and lasers. We had a couple of postdoctoral fellowships with industry, supported mm -hmm. by NSF, with people at Bell Labs, mm -hmm both at Murray Hill and at Holmdale, the two big Bell Labs uh, locations. All, all of that wonderful basic science has now disappeared, at least uh -huh. from Bell Labs. Yeah. And so we did some work on, on optical trapping, for example, uh -huh. and, uh, and other laser problems. Yeah. And then I became more and more involved in, in mathematical, in, in neuroscience. Again, mainly as a result of meeting a neighbor in Princeton. Yeah. This was John Jonathan oh. Cohen. And that led to working with Jonathan now for, I guess, we're 13 years now. We've mm. been working together yeah. on problems in decision-making, cognitive right. control. Yeah. Um, and in the middle there, uh, several uh, PhD students around the time when I was a student who worked on, on very pure math-type problems. Yes. So, yes, I've had students in... in math departments and physics departments. Do you, do you think there was something unique about the Cornell structure at the time with the uh, TAM field and, of course, department and the applied math program and maybe what you have here at Princeton that allowed someone like yourself to have those kinds of interactions yes, that maybe so, not, wouldn't be present otherwise? Other well, places? certainly it was, it was a wonderful place for me to grow up academically uh, at Cornell uh, with uh, TNAM, which was on the sort of theoretical fringes of engineering and cooperated pretty closely with mathematics in teaching basic math to engineering students and uh, I found the math department was quite welcoming. Mm. Eventually I had a, an appointment there as well as in TNAM. All of those departments were fairly welcoming to mm. outsiders mm. and um, inclusive. You know, I, I advised a couple of PhD theses in the math department at, at Cornell. Mm -hmm. I had probably equal numbers of students in TNIM, mm -hmm. of whom, of course, you were one, mm -hmm. and um, in, in applied math. 
and so uh, I've always been used to having a fairly broad range of interests uh, in my students, so both individually and across the individuals. But, but this speaks to me not only that to you as an individual, then as I said before, willing to take some risks in what you engage in and how you approach new topics. But it speaks to the institution being willing to take risks. Putting that kind of structure in place means that you're you're thinking, you're allowing yourself to think out of the box, and you're you're, you're yes. challenging your. Yes, it certainly was relatively easy at Cornell, and it is here too. Mm-hmm. The structures are some. Well, there are differences, but in spirit, they're rather similar. Mm-hmm. Cornell graduate study was arranged not around departments, but around fields of study. A graduate field could be much more capacious than a department. Here, it's mostly done through departments, but Mm -hmm. it's very common to have advisors, for graduate students to have advisors who come from outside their department. Mm -hmm. And the applied math program here, which is similar, at least from the viewpoint of students, to the structure at Cornell, we have our own graduate field of applied and computational mathematics, Mm -hmm. And we have a core of about 11 or 12, 12, I guess now, faculty, okay. almost all of who have joint appointments. Then we have a, a sort of halo of almost 50 mm-hmm. associated faculty mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. from all across the university, biology, uh, economics, mm-hmm. social sciences, mm-hmm. as well as all the physical sciences and engineering. Um, so students have a very wide range of advisors uh, with whom they uh, immediately are aware they could work. What I've been always struck with, and maybe it's partly because of, of, of your mentorship and, and your example, dynamicists are very flexible, uh, very able to uh, yeah, I, I see it, go I think, across boundaries. Right. I, I, I see it perhaps a little more generally that people who can build models and right. can analyze them yeah. are going to be pretty flexible. This unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics is, is a wonderful notion. It really is amazing how yeah. far you can go with differential equations. Maybe mm. not all deterministic, but mm. deterministic and stochastic mm. differential equations mm. allow you to model a lot of different phenomena. But how, do, how does one come to that flexibility? I mean, is, is, we're not teaching flexibility in our uh, well, um, I try to do it. Yeah. I'm teaching a course right now, which I developed a few years ago in mathematical neuroscience, uh-huh. which has the sort of dual aim of teaching some physical scientists and mathematicians something about neuroscience yes. and teaching neuroscientists something about mathematical methods. And modeling. And there, the idea is to expose some models and methods from analysis, baby topology, numerical methods and use these tools to describe some basic phenomena mm-hmm. in neuroscience. Mm-hmm. The action potential, mm-hmm. the synaptic transmission of information, mm-hmm. small circuits of neurons, central pattern generators for mm-hmm. locomotion, for example. Mm-hmm. But it's seeing the similarities between different physical systems, biological yeah. systems, and, and, and yeah. seeing how the, the math, or the applied math, forms that Yes, that the, glue same, that the same structures across. and models. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even the same kinds of models. I was mentioning... Do you over lunch or before lunch? Yeah. The, the this voting for nest sites among yes, bees. The, bees yes. the model that the bee people have developed mm-hmm. is really isomorphic to the decision-making model of two competing accumulators accumulating information uh-huh. for in favor of two possible alternatives. Uh-huh. And whether it's a community of bees doing it or a community of neurons in our frontal cortex doing it, uh-huh. the same mathematics. Uh-huh is going to help us uh, describe it and understand it. Well, very much. I uh, appreciate very much your time, Phil. Uh, really, really very intriguing conversation. 
uh, and thank you for uh, this opportunity. Well, thanks. Thanks for uh, regenerating all of these old things in yeah. my head. Thank you. This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor Philip Holmes from Princeton University. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.